Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website, and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, the gin craze gripped Britain in the 18th century when the government feared that poor people were drinking far too much cheap gin, damaging their own health and the safety and well-being of all. The roots of the craze were traced to William of Orange, whose Dutch gin became a loyal Protestant drink and his new laws made beer expensive and let anyone distill and sell gin very cheaply at home. Soon you could, get, you could drink for a penny and get drunk for tuppence. Hogarth later highlighted the horrors of alcohol in his gin lane, made as tougher and tougher laws were being imposed to end what was seen as a dangerous overconsumption by the masses. With me to discuss the gin craze are Angela McShane, research fellow in history at the Victorian Albert Museum and University of Sheffield, Judith Hawley, professor of 18th century literature at Royal Holloway, University of London, and Emma Major, senior lecturer in English at the University of York. Judith Hawley, how entrenched was the drinking of strong alcohol and spirits in late late 17th century Britain? Well, everybody drank. I mean, there were some abstemious Puritans. Men and women. Men and women, adults and children. Um, children would have uh, some. What are we talking about? Children aged eight onwards, thirteen yeah. onwards. Uh, young kids would have a glass of beer for breakfast, small beer, so it's weaker than um, what we might drink now. But everybody drank. They drank throughout the day. Water was very bad, and there were lots and lots of brewed beverages. Spirits weren't drunk so much, but you'd find people from every age, um, both both genders and every class, drinking quite a range of alcoholic drinks. There are lots of things which we don't have uh, really drink very much anymore, various kinds of punches and cordials and mixed drinks. But drinking was quite socially stratified, so there'd be alehouses where, which were run for the poor by the poor, where you'd drink beer or ale. And then in the middle, there'd be taverns which served wine, and they're mostly frequented by the gentry. And then inns which served wine and a, and a wide range of drinks and also food. What are they? Um, the drinks might be cordials, they might be... They might be spirits, but really strong spirits weren't really drunk... Uh, regularly in Britain until William of, of Orange brings them in. And where did gin come into that? Oh, gin is not quite there at the end of the 17th century, is it? It, it? it comes in with William of Orange in, in 1688. 1688. He starts bringing it in. And, and the British had also drunk some gin and also brandy. Brandy is a, sort of a, a confusing term. But it comes from the Dutch for burnt wine, brandy wine. Um, so it means any distilled spirit. And there are a range of spirits which had all sorts of different flavourings. Aniseed was a very popular one. And there are various names like Aquavita, Aquafortis. So people were drinking spirits, but not in very large quantities, because they weren't, very, they weren't made in large quantities. Was there an impression in, let's call it Europe for the sake of ease, that this island was a sort of rocking boat of drunkenness? Um, yes, but also the British referred to the Dutch as, as, as drunks. I mean, everybody called everybody else a, a drunk. There was, there was certainly a hard drinking culture. So it wasn't just that everybody drank at low levels throughout the day, but that um, gentlemen and uh, people associated with the two main political groups, the Whigs and the Tories or the successors of the Puritans, would drink uh, to toast their particular heroes. And there are stories of uh, returning cavaliers dragging people off their horses and forcing them to drink a toast to the king. And if they didn't, then they would be ducked and um, and beaten up. So there's a, there's a, a real uh, hard drinking culture. People would deliberately get drunk um, very often through toasting, feasting, club making. Before we go much further, can you tell us what you mean by people? Um, by people, I mean all classes. I mean, is this the, properly the researched? There's a lot of people yeah. in all classes were at the booze from breakfast onwards. Yes. Right. Quite definitely. <laughs> was it anything? Was there a, a, any idea that beer could be better for you than water? Because water was like W.C. Field. You never know where it's been. But apart it's, from yeah. that, it was polluted. And was that was that a knowledge of that? There was a knowledge of that. There isn't a real knowledge of infection. Um, but the water might well be because running water was very hard to come by. So the water might be standing, and you could tell that it was it was yucky. Uh, it was pretty unpleasant stuff. And I think there also is, there was a sense that beer had health-giving properties, so that it was good for you in itself. Right. Angela McShane, 
How did William of Orange change the drinking? He came in, in in the glorious revolution of 1688. One of the most glorious things he seemed to have done was bringing gin. Absolutely. Um, well, <coughs> I think there's three ways, really, that William changed uh, drinking culture um, in Britain. And the first most obvious thing was that in 1690, uh, so he's here for two years, he's already been at war, um, and is at war in any case in his own European wars, and he brings in an act for to encourage the distilling of liquors in Britain, deliberate, and in England especially, but deliberately to counteract the fact that he's pretty much banning French brandy from coming in. So he's opened the door to any distillers who would like to set up. And the problem with that act was that it didn't have any regulation in, involved in the in the act. So there was no regulating of that trade. And, and it was so very cheap to set up a distillery. You could set up a distillery. There were no costs on licensing. So really, Freedom Hall for distilling. This resulted in a lot of front rooms run by enterprising women uh, turning into gin, gin, yes. gin dens. You get... Um, well, eventually, you're going to get... There are, I mean, by the 1730s, 1,500 distillers in London, of whom 1,200 have a little still or make compound liquors, that is to say, put in those flavours that Judith was talking about. And only, you know, a uh, 100 of them have really big stills. They're producing the, the hard liquor. And he introduced it to the forces, so they went to, they went, they went to battle on gin with what was called, I'm sorry about this, Dutch culture, wasn't it? Yes, well, this go. was the second Dutch thing. courage. Sorry, Dutch, Dutch courage, oh, absolutely. Yeah, or Protestant courage, in <laughs> fact. Um, so, so the second thing that he does, absolutely, is he brings into the country a vast number of Dutch sailors and recruits masses of sailors. And, of course, what sailors do is they drink. And so he's imported a lot of people who are accustomed to drinking gin and other kinds of brandies or spiritous liquors. And then also there's this liquor being being produced. And sailors like to drink this stuff because it's hard drinking, because it's a masculine thing to do, but also because it's much easier to drink on board ship. It's seen as something that is quick to drink. It's good for your courage. It's good for your health because it's warming and so on. So he's introduced that. And, the, and then the third kind of indirect effect of this is that with the growing of this, these distilleries and so on, and you bring a lot of men into London and women will soon follow. And that is exactly what happens. You know, London is sucking in all these young women from the country. They're coming to be servants. They're coming to meet men, particularly sailors. What's, you know, who couldn't love a sailor? And so they also become drawn in to this drinking culture, which is, becomes a really cool thing to do. Did his policy of doing this in order to damage the French economy work? Um, well, I'm not sure that French brandy um, ceases to be made. I mean, it doesn't, and there's lots of smuggling still going on. Uh, and what so about on. French wine? French wine, again, whether it damages the French economy, the, the French economy can recover if it's not selling to Britain, but it would, it wants to continue to sell to Britain eventually. Um, it certainly has an impact on wine drinking, and there's an interesting political um, sort of like uh, set off to that. Um, but what Britain is doing is importing Portuguese wine, so they become the big, the big new thing to drink wine-wise. Can you just develop the idea of it being a Protestant drink? Well, it's Protestant because when William comes in, he is the great Protestant deliverer. He has delivered Britain from, you know, the threat of a Catholic monarch. The Dutch who come with him are very much seen as kind of part of his, in popular culture anyway, in as part of his kind of like Protestant delivery. And, of course, they're going to go to war both in Ireland against James II and, uh, and the Catholics in Ireland and against Catholics in Europe, or at least that's how it can be portrayed, of course, it's a much more complicated picture than that, really. And so you could be thinking about um, gin as a Protestant drink in that it's feeding your armies, it's deliberately anti-French. Um, that's not a bad place to start. And we haven't at this stage in the discussion got round to the fact that it could just be harming a lot of people, but we will come to that. OK, Emma Major. Was there a sense in which... Um, there was a, we've talked about his Protestantism. It went even further than that. It quickly became as, as uh, 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 the gin was part of Britain's identity. 
Yes, it's rather fascinating. Um, Jin develops this personality um, and becomes characterised as uh, Madame Geneva. Geneva is the Dutch word for juniper, and juniper is the berry associated with gin. Um, and it becomes eventually abbreviated to gin. That's where we get our British gin from. Um, she appears as this person who will fire up the sailors and soldiers who are fighting for the Protestant cause around Europe and um, who will be the agent of providence almost and prove that God has chosen Britain as his favourite nation uh, by providing them with gin. It's funny that gin's a woman, isn't it, like Britannia? Yes. Um, well, I was absolutely fascinated uh, to see the ways in which she acquires this uh, very strong cultural presence um, during the gin craze years. She almost becomes an alcoholic, demotic uh, Britannia, mirroring the more proper one that's associated with the Church of England and, and, and who actually you know, comes with William in many ways as well. Um, she's portrayed as this boozy old lady um, who forgets to look after her baby in, in the famous Hogarth print. Um, but she's also regarded with a great deal of affection. So when the act to... Uh, effectively um, end gin drinking, 1736, came round. Um, there were actually funerals held. For, was she called Mother Geneva? She was Mother, Ge she was Mother Geneva, she Mother was Jennifer. Queen Geneva. Yeah. Um, Did they toast her? Yeah, they toasted her. And the, <laughs> the funerals were uh, apparently quite wonderful. There were prints of them. Um, people gathered um, in anticipation of the act. Um, to toast her and uh, the people act being came in... uh, trying to get rid of. Yes, we're, we're on that. We're yes. nearly there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great, isn't it? <laughs> right. Um, it was. Let's before we get on because the story is how harmful it was. But it was also thought as to could be very beneficial. Can you give us some of the ways in which this was argued? Well. Um, when the Act in 1736 comes around, um, all the kind of ideas that had been associated with gin and the benefits of Protestant drink um, came kind of to a head in these wonderful ballads and poems that were published in praise of gin. And there's a sense that these are affirming the importance of gin over wine, uh, which is a foreign drink, of course, um, or brandy, which is also a foreign drink, both Catholic drinks. And there's this great sense that it must be good for you because um, it counters the evil effects of too much tea drinking. So if you drink too much tea and you're made ill by your tea addiction, you can turn to uh, gin to make you better. So it's sold as a medicine, and one of the ways in which uh, gin sellers got round the uh, implications of the act was to sell it as uh, a medicine, um, as, as a cordial, as Judith was saying, um, so that you were drinking it for the health benefits. And this is the way that middle-class women um, and upper-class women justified their drinking. Because it went right up, right? The Queen, was a, Queen Anne was a great gin Topa. drinker, wasn't she? Yeah. The, royal, the royal gin drinking yeah. woman. The, but, but it's more than that, isn't it? Because they talk about... Can you talk? Because I've read your notes, so I'm oh. just going to repeat your notes, right? What <laughs> other benefits are supposed to flow? Well... It goes right through the entire um, division of labour. So you have poor market women fired up in the mornings with their 6am tipple, confronting the grimness of their days by uh, taking gin and suddenly making everything bearable. I mean, poor people's lives were really grim. They needed something to, to make them bearable in many ways. But um, it, also, it also had something that, I'm going to say because you're not saying it, it was supposed to sort of revive the, 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 oh, the, yes, the basic oh, spirit, yes. uh, sexual spirit <laughs> in marriage. Whew, we've got it out, right. There no, we go. Sorry, right. I was skirting round. You were skirting round. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yes. saw the skirting, but there you go. <laughs> well, um, yes, it was supposed to revive uh, marital bliss um, uh, in the home uh, by firing up uh, tired husbands and and rendering uh, aged, fed-up wives into young, teenage, uh, desirous and desirable uh, beings. So and we also know it fires stuff. people up to fight each other more than and they would afford. And of course, it fires people up. So that's buy. plenty of the good effects. We now have the rest of the program to see how dreadful <laughs> it was. Julius, um, let's let's relate that the, the rise of how did farming fit into this, and why was farming economically significant? Yes, so as well as wanting to um, to try to tackle 
uh, the import of French drinks as a deliberate policy of William III to improve the British farming industry and to provide a greater market for British grain. And the chief grains being produced were wheat, barley and rye. And if you wanted to produce wheat, and wheat was absolutely crucial for bread, and bread was the, the staple diet of, of the poor. You had to have bread at a reasonable price. And to keep the wheat coming, you had to rotate your crops, and barley was one of the chief grains used to clear the land between sowings of wheat. But barley wasn't really all that popular, and it, wasn't a, it isn't a great grain for, for human consumption. So in order to have wheat, you always produce this surplus of barley, but barley is great for brewing spirits. So producing uh, spirits in large quantities was a way of keeping farming going to keep the, the wheat producing. It also then proved very important for keeping landowners on side. So all the landowners in the area around, in the sort of the home counties and out to East Anglia, were encouraged to plant more and more barley. They turned over lands which hadn't been used productively before to the production of barley. And then they provide a very powerful lobby to keep the distilling industry going. So there's this fantastic sort of vicious and virtuous circle of supporting farming, supporting uh, distilling and supporting the, polit the politicians in power. Are there any analogies with sugar and tobacco? Absolutely. Um, tobacco, which was this uh, a crop produced in the American plantations and then is linked with both the transportation of criminals from England and with the triangular trade in slavery. Sugar, which is produced in Jamaica, and that produces rum. So the Navy eventually goes over to rum after gin is, is, is quashed. And then in, in our own lifetimes... Um, the, the overproduction of maize, corn in America, which leads to the production of corn syrup, which then gets put into all sorts of, of foods. So th there's, there's a way in which the government um, finds it very beneficial to overproduce these addictive substances because they get later on they'll get revenue from it, but they, um, they have landowners who make a huge profit from it. Angela McShane, we hear of people drinking pints of gin. What sort of gin were they drinking? Well... When you when, If you go to a gin shop uh, or if you go to a chandler's shop, then there's a good chance you're going to be getting a nice flavoured gin and what, you can choose from a whole range of things. Now, it's impossible for us to know this because until the 19th century, there's no means by which you can measure the proof right. of drink. So it's just... Uh, we've had these long discussions with people that really study this and um, there's a particular scholar called James Sumner gets very cross if you try to guess. So we just don't know what proof it was. Well, and one and of you said it was 80% then and it's 40% now. So but we just don't know this. No, we just cannot know this. And it's quite interesting that, uh, that, in fact, if you look at the literature of the time, there are often criticisms of... Of gin because it's so poor, because its proof isn't high enough. So at the time, people can tell if it's really strong. But most people are actually drinking a gin that has been watered down, it's flavoured. And when they go and order gin, they order it in quarters, which means a quarter of a pint. It, is, it will be, almost certainly include water, it will certainly include a flavour to make up that quarter pint. It will if you look at the court records of people ordering these things, it's also going to be shared between a number of people in the normal drinking. I'm talking about a normal run of drinking. And I did some calculations on how much is that then. And that is about three doubles, three of our modern doubles. So it's not actually that much. And interestingly... Well, it depends how many quarters you order. That must does, be the first course. round. But, but when you look... I mean, part of the problem with studying this is that when you look at court records, you're always looking at something that is excessive if it's to do with drinking. But if you look at court records where gin is incidental, people drink quite a lot and they do get fabulously drunk. I mean, there's no question about that. There's no question that gin is a cool new drink that people want to drink and they get drunk on it. No doubt about yeah, but that. Yeah, a cool new drink is that's one way to desperate new drink as well, isn't it? The fact is we're talking about a gin craze where the masses are... Are, they, are we on upper, upper gum tree here? Well, I think that it's true that it becomes a drink that everybody wants to drink, but it's almost as if we're trying to say that people were all sober before then. No, they weren't. <laughs> you know, people were always drinking, and they were always spectacular drinking. If you come at this from the 17th century, you know, you don't see stories that you haven't seen before. What's really fabulous about this drinking is it attracts women. First of all, it attracts women into the trade. Secondly, it attracts women to drink. And if you look at the drinking of gin, 
it's much, it's so much more girly. You get this lovely little glass to drink from. You haven't got this massive, great pewter thing, you know. You you have a lovely little glass to drink from. You can stand about and show off your new fashions. And everybody is keen to show themselves off. And, and by that, I mean, you know, including people who we think of as poor, the working poor. Right. Uh, Emma Major, we nevertheless have great concern. Uh, several Acts of Parliament are about to be passed from those in charge, having, first of all, driven the sale of government-sponsored, government-promoted and so on, that the poorer people drinking too much and people concerned, that the, the uh, dissenters were particularly concerned from a Christian point of view and a sober work point of view, but more, the government itself got rather concerned. Can you give us some reasons why you think they were concerned? Well, um, there were various uh, problems. People became unruly... Um, Jim was associated with uh, an increase in crime. Um, if you look at the old Bailey uh, records online, you can see that a, a lot of um, uh, the cases that are brought are associated with gin, um, take place near uh, places where gin was sold or uh, after drinking a lot of gin. They also uh, were concerned that gin reduced uh, productivity um, amongst workers um, and, uh, fascinatingly, um, uh, there was an argument that gin stopped you from eating healthily, so it reduced the consumption of beef. Reduced your appetite, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, so it reduced the consumption of, of that patriotic British beef that supposedly produced healthy workers and was associated uh, with, um, with, with beer um, and uh, that kind of more rural image of Britain as a, as a land of plenty and uh, sober work. But it also um, increasingly was identified with uh, children who were sick and worries about the next generation being somehow enfeebled. The worry about women was partly the worry about children, wasn't it? Yes. <clears throat> because, obviously, they were the ones who looked after the children. Judith? There were some really ghastly stories of, of about <coughs> um, what happens to either pregnant mothers who uh, drank gin, there were, people claimed that their babies would be born deformed or blackened or wizened, and also the uh, the kind of neglect, mothers and nurses neglecting their children. I don't know if this is a, a good moment for it, but there's some ghastly stories. That, that there's one of, um, of a nursemaid at a, a christening who got so drunk um, that she mistook the baby she's meant to be looking after for a log and put it on the fire. Uh, so, and these stories were used... And You asked about whether or not the gin craze was real. I think g g gin was really a huge social problem. It was a fashionable thing and people liked it. It was a huge social problem. We can't get a very accurate sense of quite what it was like because we only know about it from the polemical accounts for the people who are for or against it. But I think there's no doubt that uh, the poor were really suffering because of gin drinking. Well, one of the things that I think it's, it's really important that we get some balance, though. I mean, I agree that there's clearly, you know, that there was a lot of drinking and it was unregulated. And I think what's important to remember about that, the making of gin was unregulated, as were other drinks. So you could be drinking something seriously dire well, when you're drinking that. Exactly. So that's not to be forgotten. But when we talk about beef, for example, oh, it's reducing your appetite for beef. What actually Jekyll says is that it's reducing, it's reducing the appetite for offal which then has to be given to the dogs. Because the real concern here for so many of these writers was that the poor were becoming uh, luxurious in their eating and drinking and their leisure. The anxiety was that the poor were becoming less deferent, uh, de uh, less uh, deferential, that they were working less, that they were becoming idle, that they were enjoying luxuries. How dare they? And literally, that is said. That's not an interpretation. They say, absolutely, don't they, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, they, they're, they're actually, they actually say things that we would like them to say, like um, they get above themselves. The poor get above themselves. They imagine they're on equal footing with a king. That's right. Um, and part of the concern that you asked me about earlier with the government is that it is associated with mobs, with mob rule, with um, people gathering together and protesting at 
the existing mm. social order. Mm-hmm. And it's also very much associated with urban life. Yes. So it's it's it, at first it's really a drink of of London. So it's to do with this these new people moving into London, finding life very difficult, finding gin a very sustaining thing to do. But all that kind of social mobility, the dislocation, the sort of the move away from the country. So there's that that fear of of novelty and change mm. associated with gin. Uh, yeah. Just a second, um, Judith. The we're moving towards a time when. Um, acts were brought in, a number, seven or eight, in the early first half of the 18th century. How did that start and why did it start? Yes, so, uh, around about the 1720, people started to realise that gin was having an effect and uh, there were campaigning movements, movements such as the Society for the Promotion of Christian Knowledge, there were several societies for the Reformation of Manners. You mentioned the dissenters. It's that sort of people, they're starting to worry about it. And also there are economic arguments about the dangers of gin and, and, and population. So people start to petition Parliament, and from 1729 to 1751 there are eight separate legal instruments to try to control gin. Acts, are they? Or, Act, or, acts you know. or, or additions to other legislation yeah. to try to control it. And they don't have a great deal of success for a number of reasons. One is that the government in the, in the early years of this period, it was Robert Walpole's Whig government, and he was so much in control. This is so much the uh, the, the dominant player here. So he would he realised that um, the landed interest would not like this um, sort of re- reduction of their profits uh, through selling the, the barley. Um, and, and there's a very powerful lobby from the distillers. They, there, are, there are only a few distillers who make the main spirit. And this is one. This is a little aside, but I think we need to know this. That so there are uh, the people who sold gin from back rooms or market ladies and so on would buy in spirit from made by the main distillers, and then they would redistill it or compound it to make the gin. And those are the people, the small operators, are the ones that the acts usually went for because you could get at them because they were poor. But one problem with taxing them, uh, with making them pay for licences by putting subsidies on the spirits, is that they can't pay for it. So people widely evaded the acts, or there's there's, a, there's quite a quite a, a complex story here. But it wasn't until. Um, the government started to go after the big distillers that there was any kind of control over drinking. I read... I'm, would you like to come in? Oh, um, yes, it was ju- they became very creative about dodging the, the legislation. Um, so because gin was uh, described as associated with juniper, they just removed the juniper and sold the spirit without the juniper and with other flavourings, um, you know, aniseed, as you were mentioning. But my favourite dodge is the Puss and Mew machine, which is the first vending machine, um, which was invented... Uh, as a kind of secret way of selling gin. So this model of a cat was set up. A life-size up. model. I think larger than life. Larger than life-size um, model. And its tail was a pipe. So you would go up to the, the cat and say, Puss, I'd like some gin. And it would, if the seller had some gin, it would say mew. You'd put your money in to the ma- mouth of the cat and some gin would come out of the tail. Um, so <laughs> It could, it could go directly into your mouth. It could go. Well, I was speculating yeah, about this. Yeah. You know, whether you, you just, just sit there with your, your open and mouth and, yeah. and drink well, it in, uh, yeah. or you take a take along your little fashionable were there any object. Argu- were there any arguments uh, about the fact that this was uh, affecting the poor very much? And the rich, according to you, from at the very beginning of the program, Judith, rich were drinking just as much, if not more, yeah. than the yes, poor. Yeah. But they're doing it in yeah. their houses, not yeah. in public, yeah. and they weren't getting censored. They could. They were immune from this legislation. Uh, wasn't that? Didn't that set off riots among the poor? saying, and in certain poems that you quote and so on. Yeah. What happened there? Yes, I mean, you've got uh, really problematic riots, um, part of that mob culture that they're also afraid of. They're just so afraid of London, as Judith was saying, that it's become this mass uh, place. It's like half a million to three quarters of a million over the period we're looking at this first uh, 50 years. It's the biggest so city in the world. The big city, it's, it's yeah. sucking people up. They know that there's more people dying than are being born. They don't know why. They, they're blaming gin, and they blame gin for all this disorder and it is certainly true that after the 1736 Act which literally you know raises the price of a licence to £50 totally beyond the capacity of anyone at all uh, really other than the big distillers who aren't interested in paying that kind of money um, and they use informers to tell <coughs> people and so what you have then over the next few years is informers being beaten up 
uh, people being let off, juries refusing to convict, and essentially by sixteen uh, by seventeen thirty eight, it's a dead letter that acts. They can't get anybody to act on it. Um, the justices won't do it. They're afraid of what might happen. People are let off. Robert Allen is a very famous case. Um, so uh, so really, it becomes a problem where government cannot rule. So there's a sort of not only a. It's rather like the first poll tax, isn't it? When yeah. people just would not pay it, yeah. and they're, they're but, not going to do yeah. this again. There were street riots, and one of the cries which came out again and again was, no gin, no king, no gin, no king. Because the English man and woman reserved the right to be drunk if they wanted yes, to. Yes, that's right. Yes. It's, it's what, if, if we talked about the relationship with English identity. It's part of... Uh, British liberty mm. is a sign that we're not French. We can allow, we can get completely intoxicated yeah. when we want to. Absolutely. Um, and uh, they, the reformers try to spin that and say, no, this is not liberty. You're not, a, you're not, you're not really free if you're addicted to gin. Mm. And the true British liberty is abstinence, mm. um, which of course is much duller. Yes, and didn't didn't catch on. Didn't catch on, <laughs> oddly. Well, but again, I think that the problem is that we're just assuming if you took a gin, a drink of gin, then you got drunk. I, I think we mm. forget mm. the poor were not that all the poor do not have a miserable life every day. You know, there is a pleasure in this, a pleasure in the sociability yeah. of it, a pleasure in the materiality of it. So that we we forget that and the. The reason we forget it is because we look at a picture like Gin Lane and, mm. and you know, and often people see it as a photograph of what was going on, which, yeah. of course, absolutely is not, that we see the court cases, because it's true you can look at gin cases, but if you just put the word wine in, you will also find lots of cases of people mm. if you put beer in. Let's go to Gin Lane, the most, uh, the most famous Hogarth Gin Lane is engraving. Now, that, is, that, that gives gin a very bad name. It Slums, a baby, a neglected mother, yeah. a baby rolling from a lap down some steps, and it's where you don't want to go. Yeah. Now, how accurate do you think that was? Well, so Judith was telling us about you know, all the fears and the horrible stories and terrible stories of people, and what Hogarth does in Gin Lane, and incidentally, and really importantly, this is a two-part dialogue, mm. beer Street and Gin Lane. Beer Street you're supposed to look at first and then Gin Lane. Let's stick to Gin Lane. Beer yeah. Street's where it's another engraving. Everybody's yeah. happy, everybody's right. Yeah. Everybody's but it's quite important. Now we go to Gin. Gin Lane. So in Gin Lane it's literally a gathering together of all those terrible stories. There's suicide, there's madness, there's women who are busy, you know, kind of like so busy with their luxuries that they are avoiding their children. The dying man is wearing a, 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 a soldier's coat. This is what's going to happen to our troops and so on. So that's what's being said. But I think that one of the things worth looking at in that Hogarth print is the fact that the woman who may be Judith Defoe, who's this woman who who murders her child, she murders not, her child in order to get in order a two-year-old child yeah. because she can get six. Pence for the child's new clothes. That's and right. Been, the child That's right. Been and there's the other cases of, right. of women pawning their children's clothes, but for all sorts of reasons. So it is true that happens. But when you look at that picture, I think a key thing to look at is what is she doing? She's taking snuff from a box. And the reason I think that's important, and when you look at Beer Street, you've got a man smoking a pipe, is that the emphasis here is how dare the poor have luxury? that this is the poor who are out of place, out of the place they ought to be in, and they're, they're, they're so in, in, you know, in, uh, desirous of their luxuries that they're ignoring the things they ought to be doing, which is producing children to fill the factories to work and to make the army strong. You've talked from the beginning, I'll come back to you in a moment, you've talked from the beginning about the going right across the way. We know the Queen, Queen Anne, and uh, we know Henry Fielding on in board. So on the Henry Fielding side, Tom, Henry Fielding off Tom Jones. He and the the, um, the Bow Street runners were to clean out the area of St George, which is supposed to be an, a lot of gin-affected gin crime and so on and so forth. But what? Why did the those who were not the poor get away with the fact that they were swilling it back like mad and nobody was legislating against them, criticising them, or doing engravings about them? Twas ever thus. <laughs> well, that'll do. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> they were the ones in power. The, the poor had absolutely no power, no say in it. There was a poem. Was it in yours? Just a second. Yeah. Hold on. We've got, a, we've got two lines of a poem coming up. Oh, no. I can't remember the two lines of the poem. Oh, well, but, the, the first, line, so the first line was the, 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 <laughs> something like the, the, rich, the yes. rich eat what they want and drink what they please. 
the poor are denied even their chirping of gin. Mm. The chirping glass is chirping such a glass, lovely right. line. Well, you remember that. Such a lovely phrase, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, and they say it's only the, it's, the... The song says it's only the poor that are, that are treated like drunken swine. They're never convicted for being drunk. The, the, the rich can sit at home, drink gin um, from the bottles they keep secretly in their closets and they deny actually partaking in the gin craze. Um, and there's a sense as well that um, there's, there's a whole snobbery around what kind of drink, drink gin you actually drink. So um, the posh people drink Dutch gin. And the, actually, you know, by implication, less patriotic for doing that um, when English gin is supposedly so fine. Um, so at home, you're, you're wealthy, you sit there, you drink from your posh bottle of Dutch gin and you hide it away in your closet. What effect did the coffee houses, the rise of the coffee oh. houses and tea have on the drinking of gin? Did, did, did Was that a, a, a chance publicly to switch? Was it considered to be better or more well, stronger? I mean, stronger and whatever. It's a kind of different, it's a different kind of sociability. Um, there are different groups of people gathering to drink and talk, whether it's uh, coffee houses or tea tables at home. That's quite gendered because it tends to be men who are associated with coffee houses and women who are associated with the tea tables. And um, teas tends to be drunk uh, at home because it's easier to make than coffee. Coffee. coffee needs more of a process. Um, sorry, but, but Judith. You, you, you could actually drink alcohol in coffee shops. Yes, you can. So you, yeah. you, you could buy gin in coffee shops. Yeah. And one of the poems that I uh, came across had actually Tom's Coffee House written along the top and the and some people's names. Yeah. So you have this, this uh, image of a group of people talking about how awful it is or how good it is um, that gin should be banned while drinking coffee in a coffee house. And you so also yeah. put, put it in your coffee. And you put it in your coffee, because of course, they, we yes. We actually have cups that yeah. say, in them, that are temperance cups that say, do not put gin in me, actually uh, <laughs> included, you know, in the bottom. Because <laughs> well, you, How could you see the bottom of the cup yes. you've got tea in yeah. it? Yeah. The point is to stop you, stop you <laughs> doing it in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> before you pour the tea. It suggests they did yeah. their gin first before yeah. they did the tea. Do we see, just yeah. a second, do we see with this, this, this act, do we see a dying away of what we've been calling the gin craze. Yeah. We're talking about yeah. the middle of the 18th century yeah. now. 1751 is the first act that, that makes a real difference. Um, and this, the Hogarth's pictures that we talked about um, earlier are part of a concerted campaign, Henry Fielding's inquiry into the causes of the late increase of robbers. There's, there's a perceived crime wave after 1748 when soldiers returning from the War of Austrian Succession without any money, without any employment, get more involved in crime. And then you get this several-pronged attempt to get to grips with the social problem. So this is the first time when it's not just um, trying to close down the, the, the cheap retailers of gin, but to think, what is causing crime in the country? Um, and you get a much greater survey of the links between the production and consumption, the links between um, the uh, the poor who are drinking it um, and why they're doing it. So the 1751 Act makes several changes, which, for, for one thing, it, it, it basically wipes out all the little sellers, the chandler's shops, the market ladies and so on, and says that you have to retail gin from licensed premises, and these premises are the alehouses, taverns and inns that I mentioned earlier. Um, they have to have a licence. The licence is brought into a more affordable realm so that there is actually a, an incentive for, um, let's say, respectable retailers to sell Angel it. Uh, sorry, Angela, Angela McShane, we've talked about poverty and, that, again, it's being directed to gin, but what, what, at that time, were other causes producers, these also might be the cause what of poverty. Reducing the... Yeah. I mean, it's worth what bearing in mind poverty, that, yeah. we, that gin drinking was already reducing from from 1743, which was the peak, and then after that it's falling already. So in one sense, the Gin Act has done nothing, you know, it's already reducing. The reason it's reducing is because of poverty. A series of poor harvests, exactly as Judith was saying, soldiers coming back, they've, they've got no money, um, so they're very poor. So you've actually had a situation where there were a range of a good harvest during the earlier part of the century. People actually do have disposable income. They also work in a seasonal way, so they have leisure time. This has shifted considerably by 1750. There is poverty because there is less production, because there is less food, because it is much harder to make a living. So it reduces the popularity or indeed the availability, the, the money uh, to be able to go and drink. There are also other drinks. There are also other things that you might drink, 
beer has also reduced by now a bit in price. Is Porter tea, is a new drink. Is tea and is tea making yes. a, a stab. Tea is getting more affordable by the 1750s, certainly by the yeah. 60s, it's becoming much more affordable. But the, the big difference is, is caused by failures of harvests at the end of the yeah. 1750s, which means that the government simply has to ban distilling yeah. from grain altogether. So there's the four or five years when there's no distilling, no official distilling whatsoever, mm. and gin just is removed from the market. You, you had your hand up, Emma. Um, yeah, so it was in reference to your uh, mention of tea. Um, tea is like gin a sign of consumption, a sign of luxury and participating in things that poor people shouldn't really be participating in. And it's part of that general anxiety during this period about um, the growth of cities, about uh, the increased consumption and the sense that instead of Britain becoming a great empire, it might be just rotting. It might be becoming corrupt and fall like the Roman Empire. Why then? You, you've qualified the ones one, one way and another, and just fine. Why did they fix on gin? Why was there thought to be such? Why was mm. there a gin craze? What, Judith? Can you mm. start off by telling oh, us why it was yeah, good, like that? Good question. Um, I, I find that actually hard to answer, given that there's so many other things. I think so much of it was to do with this this fear of the new the new phenomena of the, of the metropolis. Mm and the unstable life that went on there, the way in which people were transforming their lives, new country girls coming up to town and hoping for to better themselves and ending up as, as prostitutes. Um, people thinking that while they were drunk, they were king, they could do anything. So that, that sense of the transformative powers of gin. But in some, in some ways, it's arbitrary to seize on that particular intoxicant rather than the other. Sorry, sorry, can I go this way? Uh, Angela, what's your view? Why, why, was the, why was there such fear and panic about yeah. gin? Because well, it wasn't much... in other European countries, no. was it? That's right. And I think that Judith's absolutely right. That it's to do with this growth of this city, this monster that's growing. Henry Fielding's a very interesting character because he is really a backward-looking character. He isn't looking forward. His concern is to get these people under control and go right back to where we were before. And and he's, and he's so he's just trying to stop people from having luxuries, stop people from doing what is actually happening, being able to buy new things, life having changed, exactly all these people coming into the city. What about you, Anna? And, of course, it was just rendered more visible because 80% of gin consumption took place in yeah. London. So it was a very focused... Mm. Um, it, was, it was a very focal point, really, uh, for those anxieties. And sadly, we haven't got time to go to the gin palaces. Oh, All no. those mirrors and candles and massive places. We, we, we must visit yes. them at a later time, perhaps we'll 11 o'clock this morning. Yeah, right, OK. <laughs> Thanks to Judith Hawley, Angela McShane and Emma Major. Next week, we'll be discussing T.S. Eliot's last great poem, or poems, The Four Quartets. Thank you. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. And, uh, so what did we miss out? Gin palaces, oh, you gin wanted palaces. to... Oh, but hold on, before you get to gin yeah. palaces, there's a fantastic picture, um, and it, it's done by... Um, I'll just check his name, make sure I don't forget, but C. Bowles in 1765. It's a wonderful picture of a gin shop. So this uh, is post-1751, because we ought to, you know, we've got to remember that we're still looking at 3.4 million gallons of gin yeah, yeah. carrying on right yeah. through the 18th century. There's no... Gin doesn't go away. And this picture is so brilliant because it's the gin seller, so it's a fantastic picture of a shop, none of the panic, uh, you know, of that picture. And she's being diddled by her customers. And it's a, it's a lovely picture because you see this fashionable woman, she's drinking her little glass, a little boy's come in and is stealing the money. You've got, and they're all women. And I think that the women part mm, of this story mm. is a huge part yeah. of the panic. Yeah, really Why didn't is. you bring it out more in the programme, then? Oh, no. I tried. There wasn't time. I tried. There wasn't time. We tried. We didn't try. I tried. Your reaction got a little. Most beer drinking was done in, in alehouses and taverns, which are very much mm. male, male spaces. spaces. So the gin shop is a place that could be run by a woman. Mm. It's a novelty drink, so there are no associations mm. behind it. So, oh, look, here's this new drink. Let's all join in the fashion. So women got involved. And there was, there was, there was more moral panic because women were getting drunk. And you mentioned, quite rightly, the, the fear about children being either uh, you know, damaged in the womb or being um, neglected, that sense of the, uh, the future generations being spoilt by gin. So there's a lot of that. But also prostitution. Mm. I mean, people would turn tricks in order to get their little dram of gin. 
And the, the the sermons that come out about gin are really fascinating because they often kind of combine religion with uh, you know, recent scientific research mm. to say, mm. you know, um, you're polluting your baby through uh, feeding it milk that's tainted with your gin drinking and um, that the the devil is actually gin. It's and wonderful in the gin. sermon. In yes, no, he, is, he is the servant that, that goes about seeking whom he may devour. Yeah. Um, in but, the but there was century. a real coalition between um, the, the religious, uh, the socio-political and the natural philosophers. Stephen yeah. Hales, who's a yeah. very important natural philosopher, wrote a sort of a, a, I can't remember the title, is something but a, a, a polite admonition. A really no, a friendly admonition. And he was then taken up by Wilson, by Gonson, yeah. by all of the people who yeah. were um, campaigning against gin, and, and he provided the scientific underpinning. Yeah, yes. that's right, because he actually uses an earlier pamphlet by George yeah. Cheney, who's a class, who's a classic, um, a sort of 17th century story, yeah. really, yeah. because he's a reformed drunkard yeah. who writes a pamphlet telling you about all the terrible things that'll happen to you if mm. you get drunk, and particularly if you get drunk on spirits. I mean, Daniel Defoe started off as. Oh, Pro- he switched, yes. didn't he? Yeah. 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 Shameless yeah. journalist. Shameless yeah. journalist. <laughs> but they're all shameless journalists. Yeah. Well, I can't, when, you tell, when you tell, tell the listeners what the switch was of Daniel Defoe. Well, he, he wrote in support of gin and then he wrote against gin. Yeah. Mm. It was as simple yeah. as that. He wrote for the distillers. It's partly, I think, yeah. that he, it, it, he wrote... He did that all the time. He wrote for and against the government. He, he, yeah. It depended who paid him. But I think also perhaps there's the, he had a realisation that the tide was turning, yeah. um, that, that either there's a, there's a new bandwagon to climb on or um, he was actually a social commentator um, and maybe thought, this is now a problem that I want to address. I mean, he does tend to, to, speak to, up to no, absolutely. He 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 does uh, tend to characterise the, the the benefits and the um, dangers of gin drinking through women. Yes, yeah. as, mm. as examples. He's afraid. He's afraid yeah. like that. Um, yeah. interesting. Uh, is it Colonel Jack who talks about marrying a beauty? Yes, his, he married this beauty, and yes. within, within a paragraph, <laughs> she's turned from this this beautiful buxom beauty into this kind of. Um, drug-addled old old Harridan who yeah. dies of gin yeah. um, as a sort of cautionary tale. He inserts that into one of his novels. Mm. I was trying to think when I was reading this of any any civilization I could think of where they didn't have some kind of drug yeah. mm. going yeah. on, whether yeah. it was drinking or yeah. Yeah. eating or whatever yeah. drug yeah. it was, chewing yeah. the end of some mm. root or whatever the heck yeah. it was. But yeah. Difficult to dis- yeah. distinguish, yeah. Them, yeah. wasn't it? Well, we, we did a thing yeah. on this actually, yeah. and an archaeologist was doing the deep time of yeah. alcohol, and wow. they were. Yeah. Using fermented fruits and so on, even yeah. pre pre humans, yeah. hominids really? would use it. It's a always a shamanic and important thing. It takes you out of yourself and yeah. so on. So yeah. there, I think there isn't a culture that doesn't have some sort of really? fermentation that Fermentation takes the key you from it, one yeah. thing to another. Even yeah. animals get drunk. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's a fantastic. Fruit. There's mm, a yeah. brilliant um, film you can get on YouTube. Oh, <laughs> these called drunk animals. That's right. No, 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 no. It's of these monkeys, monkeys on St Kitts, and they've been used for studying fetal um, alcoholism, synd- alcohol syndrome, because they drink and they're able to test the the uh, effects of alcohol. But you know. All of these people are smoking. Mm. I mean, this is the thing that one of the problems of only looking at gin is that you're forgetting that you know the the amount of beer being drunk is actually rising. I did I did a little calculation. And they're all smoking. Yeah, Yeah, they're all smoking. Smoking is seen as good for you. It's really encouraging. One thing is seen as good for you. All 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 the sort of ills really. The the major ills. Let's call gin an ill for the moment. But sugar, tobacco, (laughs) and and all massively supported by the government. Because yes, the landowners are making money and yeah. they wanted to protect their banks. And they need the money for war. If you if you don't um, bring it under government control, you hand it over to the criminals. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's the, what happened with and gin. And the lesson mm. of gin is that nothing the government could do changed it, but what they could do is regulate yeah. it, tax it properly, bring it within doors so that you could, you know, so that you were drinking in a place that had some licence and so on. And that <coughs> did bring gin into the same sphere as ale and beer and wine and all the others. It did persist in being identified with particularly poor people Mm. and women. I mean, 
into the 19th century. Mm. Um, mm. So the gin palaces that you mention are the, are the kind of glam um, side of 19th century drinking, and mm. uh, gin still was predominantly drunk uh, by the very poor in dram shops where they only had one room and, you know, the... The family who owned the business lived in the other room. When I was, um, when I was a kid in Wickham in the, in the early 40s, when, I'm, I'm born in 1939, without being silly, because I've analysed it, Wickham at that time was far more like Victorian age than, uh, than, than England in, in the 50s, 60s, certainly. There were quite a few pothouses. Yeah. I, I remember them. I, with an, with, generally speaking, for me, when I was a kid, it seemed like an old lady sitting there in a front room yeah. with a couple of barrels, mm, mm, and there would have mm, three or four customers. Mm, and they were very cosy little places yeah. in the house. Mm-hmm. There was yeah. it persisted, and I'm yeah. sure it persisted yeah, yeah. all over the place. Um, yeah. dram, dram shops could be quite mm. homely. homely. Cozy, I mean, yeah. they they mm. could also be the kind of the logical, almost hell sellers to to the to 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 the reality of poverty well, they because they, they are associated with pawnbrokers. I mean, the, yeah. you know, in the in the Hogarth print, you can Thank see God it's associated with pawnbrokers. Thank God they lasted until I was 18. I couldn't drink my own time because I was at a pub, but I, in the villages <laughs> there, you went to you, you could go to places you, you could go to places like that. Mm. And one of the reasons you went, of course, because there was a fire. Mm. Mm. Oh. When we had a pub, the biggest one. Yeah. The, my father became a very good landlord. He never drank in his own pub. I hasten to say, but the um, but the fire. Because mm, people was mm, their, their cottages mm, yeah, on yeah. almost it was like a, the mm. centre of this town was a slum was pulled down, mm. uh, and people went to damp places, cold places, and in the pumps there was yeah, there was supposed fire. to be, and there was a big fire. And that is well, very the, early the, yeah, the the end tag to the phrase that you quoted about drunk for a penny, dead drunk for two pence, is clean awesome, straw for free. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, you could go somewhere where there would be clean straw and you could lie down on straw instead of just in the I street mean, to that, sleep. That notice was never really put on a on a shop, so it's important to remember that. But but it but the thing is that people have to go to alehouses to drink. I mean, exactly as you're saying, in the early modern period, you don't have running water at home, mm. you don't have drink at home, you have to go and pick all this stuff up. Mm. So, again, we, we've got to remember that these things are not terrible places to go. These are absolutely essential places. Mm. And one of the interesting things about the drum shop is that, especially if you look at those nice little prints where they're not trying to say what a terrible place it is, mm. they look rather nice little places where a woman would feel very safe to go. But also, I think that is the beginning of the bar so yeah. the bar that we are mm-hmm. so familiar with and that yeah. becomes standard in a pub mm. in the 19th century, especially the gin palaces, it where gin it's palaces, absolutely yeah. part of mm-hmm. its structure, big that the dram shop is the first real beginning of that because yeah. before that, the bar is the back room where the, ballad, where the, where the barrels in are. In several of Dickens' novels, he goes into... A woman is running the place and she's sitting there, isn't she? There's yes. one specific, very good example. I can't remember. Come. Anyway, we've done enough. Oh, no, can I just add one thing? Please, one wonderful thing. Well, the producer's pacing at the door. Oh, He's got a... Deliver the, ba- the big combustion. BBC message and then the World <laughs> Service is coming in here. Spontaneous combustion. Oh, spontaneous combustion. We have to yes. have spontaneous combustion. Yeah. Okay, well, during the 18th century, um, part of the kind of anti women drinking gin uh, campaign featured cautionary tales of women who drank so much gin they spontaneously combusted. Yes. Especially old ladies. Oh, you can bring that up in the programme. Oh, I'm sorry, well, I did bring the person you are. Honestly. honestly. <laughs> There are many more history and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.